With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loop Season 2, Episode 4. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. Would you believe it? Uh, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, mm-hmm. the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on an upcoming episode. That's right. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown, who together committed eight murders across six states in the Midwest. Yeah. So uh, before we get into it, how you doing? (laughs) I'm doing okay. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to report this week. I did want to mention that my daughter's birthday was the other day, and I'm I'm just really really proud of her. She's doing some really good things with her life. Uh, Of course, she's the mother of my only grandchild, and she's a great mom. But she's also working with at-risk children in her chosen field of work, and it's something that she feels passionate about. And I just could not be prouder. So I just want to shout out happy birthday. Hey, we're also proud of you. (laughs) So uh, I, uh, I, to be honest with you, I don't, I am not okay. Um, But I know that I, I will be like my just. The, the, it's been a rough week um and like i had to like take the day off on wednesday after the election um there's just there's just so much crazy shit going on and it would it would, like my anxiety was through the roof and i literally could not even so um <clears throat> but this weekend was really nice cuz i got to rest up um i went hiking i went for a run uh, with my family and it was just lovely very therapeutic just we didn't yeah. do very much but it we got to sort of recharge um so yeah that's great uh, you yeah. need to do more of that i think i think you are right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> 
So um, for our listeners, we are going to play around with our format a little bit again. Um, we're just trying to make the best fire ass show that we can for you. So um, we're keeping listener letters in the, this segment. We'll get to in a second so we can showcase you because we love you guys, all of our listeners. But true crime news and shout outs we're going to put at the end of the show. So um, if you enjoy those segments, do not worry, Fruit Gang. They are still there just at the end. So. Um, let's, uh, let's dive into, (laughs) (laughs) okay. So, uh, yeah, Savannah emailed us this week and said, I just wanted to drop an email to let you know how wonderful you two are. Yay. (laughs) Yay. Thank you. To be honest, while I've listened to other podcasts covering the same serial killers as y'all, they never mentioned that they are people of color. Josephine mm. Gray had no idea she wasn't white. Oh, dang. <laughs> Will y'all be opening a shop soon? Uh, would love to have a button or a shirt. Keep up the awesome work and look forward to future episode. Thank Yay. you so, so much, Savannah. Yes, thank you, And Savannah. Uh, we are developing some merch. Uh, we have some buttons that we're giving out to patrons, but we also hope to open up a shop soon. It just, everything takes time and we have limited time. So, but we are working on it and mm-hmm. we would really love to hear what all of you would like to buy from a shop other than just our logo on something. If you have any ideas for something, a phrase, anything like that, just let us know. Um, mm-hmm. We are also developing patron only content and would like some feedback on that as well. Uh, so please join our Facebook group and share your ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I would just like to give a big shout out to everyone in our Facebook group. We really appreciate you joining us and interacting with us in there. Thank you very, oh, yes. very much. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Y'all are fucking dope. You knew that already. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, I would like to share... Um, we got a lovely message from a listener on Instagram. Uh, her um, or his, I'm not exactly sure. Samenchi is um, the individual. And um, <clears throat> well, actually, I believe it is uh, Samenchi is a she. So she said, uh, I was recently asked to share a new obsession. I mentioned this podcast. I think your intro beat is so good. <laughs> so do I, girl. I think the concept is good. Love hearing about cases that um, isn't all played out by the other. Uh, also, I, too, am a person of color. Native American. All right. Southern Cheyenne and Seminole from Oklahoma. Just wanted to let you two know that I love your podcast, and I'm listening to your latest episode right now. Have a great day, and keep up the great work. Um so thank you, thank you, thank you for the yeah, kind thanks words so much. <laughs> um, by the way, we wanted to point out that our intro music is by Alassin and is called Abyss. Also, uh, all of the other music we use in the podcast is in our footnotes on both our website and on Podbean. And actually, we we picked the um, intro because it sounded kind of scary and like trap music and trap music is like really black <laughs> so um w- i love the being song too i i i bounced yeah me too it, so yeah <laughs> so uh let's take a quick break and uh we'll get into the story when we come back so we would like to invite any listeners who have a business to advertise to do it with us for more information please email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com or check out our website at fruitloopspod.com all right, we're back. <laughs> um, so uh, who, who are we talking about again? <laughs> uh, we are talking about a killer couple, Alton Coleman Ooh. and Deborah Brown, who in a span of two months assaulted, raped, and murdered their way from Illinois to Michigan and down to Kentucky before authorities were finally able to capture them. Ay, Dios mío. All right, let's get into it. Now we're going to get into some stats. Okay, so uh, the killer couple, Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown, had eight murder victims. Um, let's speak their names, shall we? Their victims were Vernita Wheat, age nine, Tamika Turks, seven, Donna Williams was 25, Virginia Temple and her daughter, uh, Rochelle, were killed. Um, 
the daughter, Rochelle, was nine. Tawny Story was 15. By the way, she was white. Um, all, most of the victims were black. Uh, Mar- Marlene Walters, 44, and a man was murdered. Um, as I said, most of the victims were young black girls, uh, except for Tony Story. And I'm not exactly sure how old that man was that they killed at the end. Um, they would lure, kidnap, rape, rob, and strangle their victims. Uh, and their crimes ac- occurred across multiple states, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. Alton Coleman alone was charged with six rapes from 1973 to 1983. Very busy. And uh, the murders took place over a two-month period from May to July of 1984. So let's get into the early life of these two individuals. All right. Uh, Alton Coleman was born on November 6th, 1955 in Waukegan, Illinois, about a half hour's drive from Chicago. As a child, Alton Coleman was taunted by the other kids. They called him Pissy mm. because he often wet his pants. Oh, no. Yeah, that's not very nice. Not very nice. But uh, that is a serial killer trait, right? That they yeah. like wet the bed or wet yep. their pants. It um, is. My son actually was, uh, I was telling him about the show we were doing and he was like, am I going to be a serial killer? And I was like, no, because you don't wet the bed and you don't have a head injury and your mom loves you. So, so you should be okay. The, the uh, biggest thing is your mom loves you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, reportedly his mother was a sex worker who would often have sex with customers in his presence. He also uh, at some point uh, was raised by his grandmother, either by herself or with his mother around. Coleman's grandmother was reportedly a practitioner of voodoo. Here we go again with the voodoo Mm, and uh, possibly ran a brothel. Uh, But this was only mentioned in some places, not others. And it's hard to know what's true and what's fabricated to make the story more interesting. I suspect uh, that it may not be true, but we don't know. We don't know, but that is a common theme in these um, black serial killer cases. It's almost like like the white Americans reporting on it or the white police, you know, investigating it. Just don't don't get it. And the, yeah. it's like it's got to oh, be voodoo. It, it must have just been the voodoo. <laughs> um, so Coleman did not have many friends and he uh, generally kept to himself. But he, as a teenager, um, he developed a reputation for a very strong sex drive. Reportedly, he was pansexual and willing to engage in sex at any time, any place, with anyone or anything. Um, and uh, that's, I mean, that I, I think that is the definition of pansexual, that you don't, you don't yep. discriminate your par- partners. Nope. And, <laughs> um, there's a very famous pansexual woman, uh, shout out to Janelle Monet, the rapper and superstar performer um, who was in the movie Hidden Figures, and she came out as pansexual. So um, oh, shout out to, to uh, all our LGBTQ uh, listeners and um, friends and loved ones. So just had to mention. Okay, cool. (laughs) Coleman first came to the notice of police as a teenager when he was picked up for breaking windows in his Waukegan housing project. He was quickly labeled as a troublemaker, but for the most part, his crimes were of the petty variety, like disorderly conduct and stealing. An acquaintance from his teenage years remembers him as a hustler. Uh, he had girls giving him money. Uh, he was pimping and selling drugs, um, doing whatever he could to get that money, to get that bag. <laughs> but in 1973, he and an accomplice kidnapped, raped, and robbed a 54-year-old woman. He was acquitted of rape because the woman wouldn't testify but served two years for the robbery. Coleman gave the law many other chances to put him away, but Alton had a great facade. Uh, he was described as being smooth as silk, and he put on a good appearance in court, which often convinced jurors that uh, authorities had the wrong man. Waukegan Police Lieutenant Mark Hansen said that he was good at conning jurors. He tells a convincing story in court. People are impressed with his testimony, and he comes off as a decent person. Mm. 
But when the facade wouldn't work, Coleman wasn't opposed to resorting to witness intimidation. Oh, my. In 1983, Coleman's sister went to the authorities and told them her brother tried to rape her eight-year-old daughter. Jesus. Three weeks later, she went to court to have the charges dropped, claiming that it was just a misunderstanding. The judge hearing the motion for dismissal was astounded by the 25-year-old woman's testimony. As am I. Yeah. (laughs) I think the woman, as she stands here today, is terrified of this man, the judge said. He called her account of the incident completely implausible. But in the end, with no victim and no witnesses, the judge had no choice but to free Alton Coleman and dismiss the charges. Coleman's rap sheet before the Midwestern crime spree that uh, we're going to talk about in today's uh, episode reads like one like a one man sex crime wave. As we mentioned, in 1973, he and an accomplice kidnapped, robbed and raped a woman, and he served two years on that robbery charge. Only the robbery. Yeah, just the robbery, because he wasn't charged with the uh, sexual assault. Uh, Three months after his release from prison on that charge, Coleman was arrested for another rape. He was acquitted, but served time for a lesser charge. Four years after serving time on that charge, Coleman was acquitted of yet another rape. Wow, he must have had a good lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like he, he talked himself out of a lot of stuff, so. Yeah. Uh, A year later, he was arrested for an attempted rape. That charge was dismissed also. In July 1983, he was charged with the rape of his niece, the incident that we talked about earlier where his sister came back and was like, just kidding, Judge. Um, But that charge was also dismissed. Coleman was charged with sex crimes six times between 1973 and 1983. Two of the cases were dismissed and Coleman pleaded guilty to lesser charges in two and he was twice acquitted. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, eventually his luck would run out. We'll get there. Uh, In early 1984, Coleman was indicted for the rape of a 14-year-old girl whose mother was a friend of his. He was scheduled to go on trial in Illinois on charges stemming from that rape when he fled and began the crime spree that we will be talking about today. So uh, Deborah Brown was born on November 11th, 1962. And holy shit, we're recording this on her birthday. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Yep. We're recording on November 11th, 2018. So yeah. That's Deborah right. Brown's birthday. Oh. Okay. Yep. Happy birthday, Deborah Brown. So, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. So, so Deborah Brown <laughs> was the fifth of 11 children. Uh, During her childhood, she suffered sexual abuse and severe neglect. According to her mother, Deborah's father had mental problems and he severely abused his children. But uh, she had no history of violence or any record of trouble with the law until she met Coleman. She appeared meek and did not fit the profile of a serial killer. And her family considered her to be a good girl. Brown was actually engaged to another man when she met Coleman in 1983 at a bar. Shortly afterwards, she left her family and moved in with Coleman. I was going to say, I watched a documentary about this couple. It was like an hour documentary on YouTube. Um, By the way, not a single person of color weighed in on the crime. So it was trash, if you ask me. But (laughs) they described Deborah, oh Lord, using the R word um, with regard to her intelligence. And they said it multiple times throughout the piece. Um, and certainly her her intelligence might certainly explain her willingness to go along with Coleman um, during the spree. Yeah, I agree. I also read somewhere that her IQ was somewhere between 50 and 70. So, mm-hmm. yeah, she definitely had an intellectual disability. Yes, but we don't need to use the R word anymore. Now, no, do no, we, we don't. <laughs> So let's get into the setting. Okay, I'll start. Uh, so <laughs> this, this this whole mess, this whole ne- messiness took place in the Midwest U.S. in the 1980s. And it's clear from the headlines at the time that the couple had the entire area absolutely terrified. Um, the couple's crime spree took place in Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. And I'm going to go over a little bit about uh, killer couples. Please do, OG of true crime. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're very rare. And um, 
I have read a lot about famous killer couples like Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, Myra Hinley and Ian Brady, and Fred and Rosemary West. Uh, but this is the first POC killer couple I have ever heard of. Yeah, same girl, same, which is why it was so interesting to research it. Yeah. Um, most sexual murders operate by themselves, but children and women feel more comfortable when there is a woman present. It will disarm them. Uh, so women aren't seen as violent criminals abducting women and children off the street. So when there is a couple like this, the woman is usually used to lure the victims in. Yeah, and I just wanted to mention here that someone I know, a, fem- a female family member of hers, was re- mm-hmm. recently robbed at gunpoint. She was in a parking lot, uh, the parking lot of her apartment complex, going home, and a woman approached her, so she stopped. And then two men came up behind her and robbed her. Uh, so, yeah, you can't can't trust anyone. <laughs> No, you cannot. Everybody just needs to stay in their houses and never leave. And then we don't have to worry about any crime. (laughs) We don't have any more stories to tell. (laughs) I'll let you know how that works for me. Uh, So (laughs) many of the males in uh, killer couples were exposed to sex at a young age. Seeing deviant sexual behavior as a young child will normalize it. The women usually have a history of abuse, and it's not uncommon for these women to be abused by their male counterpart or to view them with a combination of love and fear. And it's not that the women necessarily want to be dominated, but it, it's what she knows. She feels comfortable yeah. in that role because mm-hmm. uh, she was brought up in, in that mm-hmm. role. And it's normal to them, like the the men for whom deviant sexual behavior is normalized. Being abused is normalized for them. Right. Now, uh, many of the women in killer couples are significantly younger than their male partner. Deborah Brown was seven, seven years younger than Alton Coleman, um, but she also had a very low IQ. So in mental, I mean, mentally, she was you know, younger. Yeah. And uh, many of the women do not have criminal records before hooking up with their mates. Uh, Deborah Brown had no criminal history, and as we mentioned, she was considered by her family to be a good girl. Now, this might lead you to believe that these women were also victims of the men and that they were just manipulated by their sadistic criminal partners. But the women in these partnerships didn't just go along with the men. They actually morphed into fully participating partners in the crime, Um, many of them rather quickly. Yeah, and they help by finding and tricking victims, conning them into coming with them, participating in torture and rape, and sometimes they even act out their own fantasies or desires. And this was true of Deborah Brown. Uh, The man is usually the dominant partner, but they Mm -hmm. feed off of each other. And once they have killed together, they are bound closer together. And a a weird intimacy is created between them. And they stay together because their partner helps and encourages them in their criminal behavior while also providing a false sense of justification. Yeah, according to Harvard Medical School professor and staff forensic psychologist Catherine Ramsland, there's a real narcissistic edge to these couples. They often feed off of each other and up the ante with the crimes they're committing. Oh, Lord. Uh, it creates an almost delusion where the couple are colluding with each other and often reassuring the other that what they're doing is justifiable and acceptable, even within the norms of society. That's pretty fucked up. <laughs> that is super fucked up. <laughs> So let's hop on into the timeline. All right. In 1984, Juanita Wheat lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin with her nine-year-old daughter, Vernita, and her seven-year-old son, Brandon. At the end of April or beginning of May of 1984, a man riding his bike through the neighborhood stopped and introduced himself to Juanita as Robert Knight. He told her he lived two blocks away and claimed to work for uh, an automobile manufacturer. It was Alton Coleman. Yeah, and he began visiting Juanita often and sometimes ate dinner with the family over the next few weeks. He even took Juanita and her children to a carnival. He was becoming what Juanita thought of as a friend. Mm. Now, I... uh, I, uh, 
I don't know where I heard this. Maybe it was on Dateline or something. But if there's a, a single man who's befriending you and your children, be a, be concerned. That's that's yeah. a red flag. Yeah. Uh, on May 29, 1984, Juanita allowed uh, Vernita to accompany Coleman to his apartment to pick up a stereo system, which Coleman said that he wanted to give her as a belated Mother's Day present. And unfortunately, they never returned. Juanita notified the police and police began investigating Robert Knight, but could not find anything about him. The address that he had given Juanita as his home was an abandoned building. Juanita was brought in to look at criminal mugshots, and uh, she identified Alton Coleman as the man she knew as Robert Knight. Coleman was currently waiting uh, trial for another rape. When they went to his home, they found Deborah Brown there. She denied knowing where Coleman was. And a customer at the local 400 club, a nightclub, contacted police and said that he had seen a black man and Vernita enter the establishment at approximately 11.35 p.m. on May 29, 1984. The man immediately used the telephone. A few minutes later, a cab arrived and picked them up. Keith Hatch, a cab driver, was dispatched to the 400 Club at 11.35 p.m. on May 29, 1984. Once he arrived, a black man and a black girl entered his cab. Hatch drove the man and the girl to Slater's Barbecue in Waukegan. James Adams, an employee at Diamond Scrapyard located next to Slater's Barbecue, was working during the early morning hours of May 30, 1984. At approximately 1.30 a.m., he saw a black man and a black girl walking in the middle of the street as if they had just come out of Slater's. On May 31st, 1984, so the next day, Coleman befriended uh, Robert Carpenter in Waukegan, Illinois, and spent the night at his home. The next day, he borrowed Carpenter's car to go to the store, borrowed, (laughs) and never returned. (laughs) On June 17, 1984, Coleman and Brown appeared in Gary, Indiana, where they encountered two young girls, nine-year-old Annie Hillard and seven-year-old Tamika Turks. Tamika and Annie were walking back from the candy store to their home when they ran into Coleman and Brown. Coleman and Brown convinced them to walk into the woods. And I have seen a couple of stories. One, uh, it said that they told the girls that they wanted to play a game. Um, another said that uh, they told they um, had some clothes that they wanted to give the girls. But in any case, once there, they removed Tamika's shirt, tore it into small strips, and used those to bind and gag the children. When Tamika began to cry, Bran held her nose and mouth while Coleman stomped on her chest. Oh, the poor baby. I know. Um, after carrying Tamika a short distance away, Annie was forced to perform oral sex on both Brown and Coleman, and then Coleman raped her. Brown and Coleman then choked her until she was unconscious. When she awoke, they were gone. Annie survived the attack, but had extensive injuries that required hospitalization. Tamika's body was found on June 19, 1984, which is a couple of days later. Uh, the cause of death was ligature strangulation. She was strangled with an elastic strip of bedsheet, which was later matched to a sheet found in Coleman and Brown's home. Also, on uh, June 19, 1984, the body of Vernito Wheat was discovered in an abandoned building in Waukegan, Illinois, four blocks from Coleman's grandmother's apartment. The body was badly decomposed, and the cause of death was ligature strangulation. A fingerprint from Coleman was taken from the scene. Also, on the same day, June 19th, Holy Jesus. I know. Coleman befriended Donna Williams, 25, of Gary, Indiana. Williams's badly decomposed body was discovered in Detroit a month later, about a half mile from where her car was found. The cause of death was again ligature strangulation. On June 28th, 1984, Coleman and Brown entered the home of Mr. and Mrs. Palmer Jones of Dearborn Heights, Michigan. Palmer was handcuffed by Coleman and then badly beaten. Miss Jones was also attacked. Coleman ripped the Joneses' phone from the wall and stole their money and their car. The day after Independence Day, so July 5th, 1984, Coleman and Brown came to Toledo, Ohio, where Coleman befriended Virginia Temple, the mother of several children. Her eldest child was Rochelle, aged nine. 
When Virginia dropped out of communication with relatives, they became concerned about the children. Entering the home, uh, they found young children alone and frightened. Virginia's and Rochelle's bodies were discovered in a crawl space in the home. Jeez. Yeah. A bracelet was missing from the home and later found in Cincinnati under the body of a later Coleman and Brown victim, Tawny Story. The cause of death of both Virginia and Rochelle was strangulation. The same morning as the murders of Virginia and Rochelle. Man, these people are busy. Coleman and Oh, my. Coleman and Brown entered the home of Frank and Dorothy Duvendak of Toledo, where Coleman proceeded to bind the couple with appliance and phone cords, which had been cut. Coleman and Brown took money and uh, the Duvendak's car. One of Mrs. Duvendak's watches was stolen and found later under another victim. Later that same afternoon, Coleman and Brown appeared at the home of Reverend and Mrs. Millard Gay of Dayton, Ohio. They stayed with them in Dayton and then accompanied them to Lockwood, Ohio on July 9th to a religious service. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, so weird. <laughs> Yeah. Well, gotta go to church. <laughs> Might as well. Stop killing so we can go to church. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then on July 10th, the gays dropped off Coleman and Brown in downtown Cincinnati. Now, by this time, Coleman had come to the attention of the FBI, which on July 12th, 1984, added him to its 10 most wanted list as a quote unquote special edition under number 11. I, who knew it went to 11? Um, Coleman was just the 10th person since the initi- initiation of the list in 1950 um, to be included as a special edition. So um, his mom must be proud. I don't know. Yeah. The FBI <laughs> turned to 11. <laughs> yes. For, for my baby. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so shit's, shit's getting serious. Yeah. On July 11th, 1984, Tawny Story, age 15, from Cincinnati, Ohio, was reported missing after she failed to return home from school. Her body was found eight days later in an abandoned building. She had been strangled to death. One of uh, Tawny's classmates testified that um, she saw Coleman talking to Tawny the day she disappeared. A fingerprint at the crime scene was also linked to Coleman and a bracelet a bracelet was found under Tawny's body, which was later identified as one missing from the Temple home. Coleman and Brown bicycled into Norwood, Ohio on July 13th at about 9.30 a.m. And less than three hours later, they drove away in Harry Walters' car, leaving Harry Walters unconscious and his wife Marlene dead. Now, Harry Walters survived, and he testified that Coleman and Brown inquired about a camper he put up for sale. Walters sat on the couch as he and Coleman discussed the trailer title. Coleman then picked up a candlestick and, after admiring it, hit Harry Walters on the back of the head with it. Oh, my God. <laughs> a very nice candlestick. Bam! Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, God. Uh, <sighs> the, the force of the blow broke the candlestick and uh, drove a chunk of bone against Mr. Walters' brain. And wow. from that point on, Mr. Walters remembered little else. Now, Sherry Walters, Harry and Marlene's daughter, came home from work at about 3.45 p.m. And at the bottom of the basement steps, she found her father barely alive and her mother dead. Both had ligatures around their throats and electrical cords tied around their bare feet. Her mother's hands were bound behind her back and her father's hands were handcuffed behind his back. Her mother's head was covered with a bloody sheet. The coroner indicated Marlene Walters had been struck on the head approximately 20 to 25 times. Oh, no. Yeah, that's crazy. That's excessive. Yeah. Twelve lacerations, uh, some of which were made with a pair of vice grips. No. Covered her face and scalp. What the fuck? Oh, God. The back of her skull was... Yeah. Uh, This is hard to read. (laughs) The yes. back of her skull was smashed to pieces. Parts of her skull and brain were missing. What do you think that means? Like they um, took they took parts. I I don't know. It could be, uh, like some of it was on their clothes and they they left, so mm. it took it 
with them or maybe uh they hit her so hard that uh some of these pieces like went around the room and i don't know like yeah behind, it's it, wild you know yeah it is wild yeah i don't know uh, so the living room, hallway, and basement were splattered with blood. Fragments of a broken soda bottle bearing Coleman's fingerprints were found in the living room. And strands of Marlene Walters' hair were found on a bloodstained magazine rack located in the living room. Bloody footprints made by two different kinds of shoes were found in the basement. These people were not very uh, careful about the crime scene. They left no, shit they were everywhere. Very, um, yeah, yeah Me- very messy. Uh, arrogant messy and and like just didn't think about i don't know all the evidence left behind yeah and, and just did not caught. give a shit yeah yeah i don't think yeah and we i i, I haven't haven't heard any um indication of like drugs or alcohol being involved no. that might have like led to the sloppiness or explained to it. no yeah. no i think they were just uh on a spree and having fun mm-hmm. as sick as that is yeah. 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 So uh, the family car, uh, Red Plymouth Reliant, was gone. And I have to mention that my first car was a Plymouth Reliant. <laughs> no way. Yeah, oh, that, man. It was an ugly <laughs> car, but it was very reliable. <laughs> well, I guess that's why it's called the Reliant. Yep. <laughs> and not the beautiful car or something. <laughs> <laughs> they they don't make those anymore i take it no no, no. Was, yeah that was uh, the 80s yeah so anyway oh. they stole stole the reliant uh money jewelry and shoes and but they left behind the two bicycles that they had ridden into the neighborhood and uh, mm-hmm. i don't know where they got those they probably stole them and yeah, they also sure. left behind uh some clothes and shoes so Mm-hmm. They stole money, jewelry, and shoes, and left behind bicycles, clothes, and shoes. Okay. Okay. Uh, two, right, two days later, the Plymouth Reliant showed up abandoned in Kentucky. The couple then kidnapped Olean Carmichael Jr., a Williamsburg, Kentucky college professor, and drove back to Dayton with their victim locked in the trunk of the car. On July 7th, or 17th in Dayton, they abandoned his stolen vehicle and Carmichael was rescued by authorities. So they're getting close to catching him. Yep, getting close. Coleman and Brown reappeared at the home of Millard and Catherine Gay. You might remember that they had stayed with Reverend Gay and his wife on July 5th after committing multiple crimes and then they went to church. <laughs> oh. I don't know why that, but that just makes, <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> Kill a bunch of people, commit some crimes, and then go to church. Uh, Well, the reference doors are always open, as we all know. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I know that if I did did something illegal, I could probably call up my pastor today and be like, I need some help. (laughs) Yeah, Um, probably could. Probably could. Uh, But uh, anyway, I haven't done anything wrong, so I don't need to. Um, Because Coleman and Brown were by this time the subject of a huge nationwide manhunt, the Reverend Gay recognized Coleman, and this time the couple accosted the Reverend and his wife with guns. Oh, no. The Reverend Gay asked Coleman, why you want to do us like that, like this? And according mm-hmm. to Gay, Coleman responded, I'm not going to kill you, but we generally kills them where we go. Coleman and Brown took their car and headed back toward Evanston. So so they did not kill them. Good. Uh, but before they got to Evanston, they carjacked and murdered another person, 75-year-old Eugene Scott in Indianapolis. So now... Um, We're done with the timeline. We're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. Coming towards the end. All right. (laughs) So on uh, July 20th, 1984, in Evanston, Illinois, someone from Coleman's old neighborhood pulled up to a red light. As he waited for the light to change, Coleman and Brown crossed the street right in front of his car. He only knew Coleman casually, but he did recognize him. As Coleman and Brown continued walking west, the witness drove north to a gas station and notified the police. Oh, 
Okay. Um, the information was dispatched and a description of the two was broadcast. As officers pulled into the area, a detective saw Coleman and Brown sitting on bleachers in an empty Mason park, but noted they were wearing different t-shirts. I guess different t-shirts from the one they were wearing when they were spotted crossing the street. Okay. I guess that's what that okay. means. Uh, the detective informed the other units just as two sergeants were driving by the park. As they heard the broadcast, they turned and saw the two. The officers observed Brown walking away from Coleman towards the rear of the park. The detective joined the two sergeants and Coleman was approached for questioning. As Coleman was being interviewed, two other officers stopped Brown as she tried to exit the park. She was searched and a gun was found in her purse. Coleman had no identification and denied that he was Alton Coleman. Both Coleman and Brown were taken into custody without incident and transported to the Evanston Police Department, where both were identified by their fingerprints. Gotcha! Uh, (laughs) In the police station, Coleman was strip-searched, and a steak knife was found uh, between two pair of sweat socks he was wearing. When taken into custody, they had a shopping bag full of different T-shirts and caps. It was learned as the two walked, uh, they would stop every three to four blocks to change shirts and caps. That is clever. Yeah, it is. Uh, fucked up, but clever. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> a week after they were arrested, more than 50 law enforcement officials from Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio met to plan their strategy for prosecuting Coleman and Brown. Michigan, which does not have the death penalty, was quickly ruled out as the place to begin, and eventually Ohio was given the first shot at the alleged spree killers. U.S. Attorney Dan K. Webb said, "Uh, We are convinced that prosecution in Ohio can most quickly and most likely result in the swiftest imposition of the death penalty against Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. Ohio was successful in convicting Coleman and Brown on a pair of aggravated murder charges in May 1985 for the murder of Tawny Story and in June 1985 for the murder of Marlene Walters, as well as other violent crimes. Uh, They were both sentenced to be executed and the lengthy appeals process began. Coleman's case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court several times between 1985 and 2002, but his numerous arguments that his conviction and death sentence were unconstitutional failed to sway the justices. So I think they they, They got it right. They got it right this time. Yeah. So, where are they now? Alton Coleman got the death penalty, and by April 2002, his time had run out. His last-ditch effort to avoid lethal injection was unsuccessful, when on April 25, 2002, the Ohio Supreme Court rejected a claim by Coleman's attorneys that the state's plan to accommodate the large number of victims and survivors who wanted to view the execution would turn it into a spectator sport. There were so many victims and survivors who were allowed to witness the execution that prison officials had been forced to set up a closed circuit viewing outside the death house. Wow. Now, uh, for his final death meal, we've talked about this this on the show before, Coleman had a filet mignon with mushroom gravy, biscuits and gravy with fried chicken, french fries, broccoli and cheese, collard greens, onion rings, cornbread, a salad, sweet potato pie, butter pecan, ice cream and a cherry cola. That sounds pretty damn good. It's making me hungry. That is a lot of very. My mouth is watering. <laughs> that is yeah. Now, um, <laughs> I'm just gonna throw this out there because uh, uh, I've heard this discussion comes up amongst Black people around the holidays about sweet potato pie or um, pumpkin pie is the argument amongst Black people. Right. And Black people really don't fucks with pumpkin pie. We 
love sweet potato all the way. And it has to do with the fact that sweet potatoes are uh, similar to yams that came from Africa. So when the oh. slaves came over here, the yam, the sweet potato was similar to a yam that was, was uh, you know, used in, in African cooking. And so that's why black people love sweet potato pie. And you could keep the pumpkin pie to your damn selves. <laughs> okay. Sorry. You know what? <laughs> I, I've never had sweet potato pie. Huh? I've well, never had it. Come over to my house for the holidays. <laughs> we'll, we'll I was going to ask you. You have a you have a um, recipe for sweet potato pie? No, I just buy it at the store. <laughs> oh, where, where but, do you uh, buy it? Oh, well, this is another interesting thing about living in a black neighborhood: is things that you can get at our grocery store you cannot find at like Whole Foods or like a grocery store in your neighborhood. So there's yeah. sweet potato pies at. at Safeway and the and the the um, fries in my neighborhood, but you can't okay, get them cool. in, in white neighborhoods. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. I was gonna. <laughs> I'll, I'll look just in case. I'm gonna see if they have them yeah. around here somewhere. Um, yeah, but I I've never seen it anywhere, and oh nobody's my. ever brought it to uh, one of our get-togethers or anything. It, it was like one of those mythical things. <laughs> Well, now I am on a mission. Now I have a reason to live so that you can take some potato pie. pie. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, because I'm actually not not a huge fan of pumpkin pie. I I like it maybe, you know, once a year. I'll have a But But it's not, I don't get excited about it. I like pecan pie better. Oh, same, 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 girl, same. Um, But once you have sweet potato, you, there's no going back. All right, I'm going to try it. Awesome. Uh, so back to the story. So on April 26, 2002, while reciting The Lord is My Shepherd over and over again, Alton Coleman died by lethal injection in the death chamber at the state prison in Lucasville, Ohio. Reginald Wilkinson, director of the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, said Coleman did not convey remorse for the killings. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, At the time of Coleman's execution, there were approximately 3,700 convicted murderers on death row in the United States. Coleman was the only one with death death sentences from three different states, Indiana, Ohio, and Illinois. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Deborah Brown's death sentence in Ohio was later commuted to life because of her low IQ scores and nonviolent history prior to meeting Coleman and her dependent personality, making her susceptible to Coleman's control. Now, she is currently in the Ohio Reformatory for Women, and she still faces the death penalty in Indiana. Indiana requested Brown to be extradited, but Ohio denied the petition. Um, And she has never expressed remorse either. Yeah. Also on another podcast, True Crime All the Time, they covered this story and said that Annie Hillard, the little girl who survived one of the earliest attacks, as an adult with her teenage sons, attacked and beat her husband with a bat almost to death. Now, I did find this news story, but Mm -hmm. I could not determine if it was the same person. Uh, There seemed to be two different spellings. Hilliard with an I after the LL versus Hillard, no I. Um, And I don't know uh, if it's the same person, which is correct which spelling is correct or what (laughs) I don't, I kind of suspect that maybe it's not the same person, but uh, maybe some of you loopsters can figure this one out and I'll link the news news article in our show notes. Yes. So uh, let us know fruit loops pod squad. I, uh, I am dying to know. Yes. Um, So uh, now we'd like to talk about what we think made these two nutsos snap. So I'll let you start, Beth. All right. Uh, So Coleman was diagnosed with mixed personality disorder with antisocial, narcissistic, and obsessive features with additional diagnoses, including epileptic spasms, psychosis, and borderline personality disorder. Brown is intellectually disabled. She suffered a head trauma as a child 
and a psychiatrist diagnosed her with dependent personality disorder. She did whatever she could to please Coleman and Coleman spent some time forming her. Um, Coleman had been indicted and was facing trial for a rape charge and the police were looking for him on the disappearance of Vernita Wheat. William Mm -hmm. Keefe, a special agent with the FBI in Chicago, testified at trial that Coleman told him that he just went off, that he flipped. So I think what probably, I mean, he was already a bad person, but I think what probably set him off on this particular crime spree was the realization that he no longer had anything else to lose. Yeah. The jig was up. Yep. Jig was up and he was just going to do whatever he wanted to do. And Deborah Brown uh, went along with him. Uh, She's also guilty. I mean, she, she did things, um, terrible things too. So she's not to be excused uh, by any, not no, blameless. she is not yeah. blameless. But I, I don't think she would have done these things on her own. I agree with all of the things that you said. Um, and I don't have anything to add. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, so uh, now we're going to get into our takeaways, what uh, we thought of the story. Um, for me, it is just unfortunate all around from... Um, Alton Coleman and uh, Deborah Brown's, their their upbringings sound like they were super shitty. Um, they were failed by their um, people who were supposed to protect them and love them. And even the system didn't um, step in and, um, you know, foster care, CPS, nobody was there to sort of um, come in and, uh, and help these kids. Um, and uh, to the vulnerable little black girls that they preyed upon and, and harmed, um, my heart... Uh, goes out to them the most. Um, I love true crime, but cases invol- involving and harming little kids um, are really, really tough for me um, because my, personally, I have I have really small kids, um, and I don't know shit about the Midwest. <laughs> it's like a foreign <laughs> land to me. Um, but it was interesting to me to, to pull these places up on the map because they're, they're all these big cities and states are just so close to each other. Like over here on the west, other states aren't close other big cities no. are close so it's it's just weird that you can just boop, like get on a bike and ride for a few hours and end up in a whole nother state so uh, I thought that was I thought that was interesting so yeah the stories about children really upset me um and also the abuse that the killers suffered as children I mean yeah. um it's hard to have sympathy for them as adults but the children yes. Uh, that they were at one time, I have empathy for. Um, Have you ever seen the movie The Cell? Uh, Yes. Vincent D'Onofrio, Jennifer Lopez. Yes, Yes, please. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite movies. So um, Mm -hmm. for for the loopsters out there, uh, Jennifer Lopez plays the part of a psychologist who's asked to use an experimental device, which allows her to go into the mind of a serial killer who's in a coma. Uh, They're trying to find a woman that the killer abducted before he went into a coma and she may still be alive. Uh, Mm -hmm. Vincent D'Onofrio, as you mentioned, he plays the serial killer and he he is so good. (laughs) He's so good. He's so underrated just in general as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the story goes into the killer's childhood and how he was abused and it got a lot of mixed reviews. And I think, um, that's because a lot of people misunderstood the story and felt like the movie was saying that we should have empathy and sympathy for, for the killer. But I, I didn't see it that way at all. It was more Mm -hmm. like a psychological exploration into what creates a killer and we can hate the killer and still have empathy for the child that he once was and do what we can to try and prevent child abuse and the situations which create more killers. And that's it. That's my- Can you say that again for the people in the back row? Wow. No, that's good. That is good. I love that take. Oh, my God. Man, you're good at this, Beth. <laughs> so. <laughs> hey, man, that was fucking fire. Okay, Beth. Hey, my hip-hop air horn isn't working. Oh, no. Oh, man. 
Oh, there it is. There go. <laughs> now that's that's how I feel about your take. That was good. All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that jingle so much. (laughs) It's pretty fun. It is. Uh, So this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. But in my mind, this is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Okay, so since this case involved the abduction, rape, and murder of little kids, I wanted to share something that I saw on the news. Now, here in Arizona, um, I don't know, somewhere around the valley. Chandler. It was Chandler? Okay. Um, Yeah. So, uh, Chandler's like super white, so I don't ever go there. Anyway, here (laughs) in Arizona... (laughs) (laughs) A little girl was approached by a man in a car and uh, he he knew her name and told her that her brother was in a terrible accident and her mom sent him to go get her. Well, this girl's mom gave her a code word and the girl asked, well, what's the code word? And the guy got really flustered. He didn't know. He got surprised and it it freaked him out. So he drove away. The code word saved this girl's life. Um, Wow. The law enforcement. Yes. I, yes. Incredible. The law enforcement officer who interviewed, um, the, who was interviewed for this piece recommended having a code word for your family in the event of trouble. Now me and my girlfriends in college, when we used to go to parties, we'd be like, okay, here's the code word before we get into this party in case some, some mess goes down or one of us gets into trouble or something. So um, I, I always had a code word with my girlfriends, but I never considered having one for my family. So um, also the cop recommended avoid having your kid's name visible on their clothes or like their backpack. Um, Cause it, 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 it advertises it and kids are often trusting of grownups who know their names. So have a code word and don't put your kids' names on blast. Um, also, we would like to continue the hashtag how not to get murdered um, for our Fruit Loops pod squad across all the social media. So let us know your tips on uh, how you yeah. don't want to get murdered. Yes. And um, I just want to add, trust your gut. Always trust your gut and don't feel yeah. bad about being rude. If you have to be rude, <laughs> be rude, stay be alive, rude. be rude. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do you have, we're going to get into some, uh, serial killer or crime news. Um, we found, uh, this latest suggestion from a listener, shout out to our listeners for listening and feeding us some really awesome case ideas, how not to get murder tips. Um, this specifically, uh, is a shout out to my sis, Sarah a for emailing us this crimes, uh, news suggestion. Um, and as always, we appreciate all of you guys engaging with us. We're in this together. Amen. So, um, Sarah shared a story with uh, the following headline. Police are investigating the death of Ferguson protesters' son as a suicide. Um, And it appears that there is some funny business going on in Ferguson. Um, It looks like protesters are systematically being murdered. Um, That's at least how people of color feel. And uh, the other perspective is that, well, it's all a coincidence. Uh, That's what non-people of color uh, appear to um, their, their position. Anyway, a protest, a protester named Donye Jones, um, his mother insists that her son was lynched. Now, uh, as you recall, the Ferguson unrest occurred after the teenager, the child, Michael Brown, was shot in the street by a police officer named Darren Wilson, and no charges were ever brought against him. Um, and the crazy thing about the protest, lots of crazy things, um, millennial black and brown activism erupted and the energy and urgency of the Black Lives Matter movement mirrored that of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s in the United States. Um, I also recently found out that Beyonce and Jay-Z would secretly step in and um, pay for the bail of several of um, the protesters, but they would do it anonymously. Anyway, um, since the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, the protests were about police brutality, several prominent figures of the movement have turned up dead. 
One is DeAndre Joshua. He was 20 years old, found shot in the head in his car, and the body was lit on fire. Um, police tried to link the murder to rioting. Okay, guys. Uh, two was Darren Seals. He was 29, found dead inside a burning car, also fatally shot. Seals was one of the first protesters and uh, became a prominent anti-violent uh, advocate. His murder remains unsolved. Um, the third one was Edward Crawford. He was age 27 um, when he died for what police say was a quote-unquote self-inflicted gunshot wound. His family believes it is nonsense. Um, and there's a, a famous image of him wearing an American flag hurling uh, a, tear a tear gas canister back at the police. Um, and so it's an iconic image related to these um, Ferguson um, unrest. And number four is the Donye Jones. And he was the son of Melissa McKinnis, who is um, a very um, prominent activist in Ferguson. And he was found dead in the backyard of his mother's St. Louis County home, hanging from a tree with a bedsheet. And the death is being investigated as a suicide. Um, I am giving epic side eye to the Ferguson, Missouri police uh, for investigating it this way. Um, I personally am keenly aware of America's very ugly history of lynching. Um, I've talked about it in past episodes, but it's a form of white terrorism. And I, I found a word from a DJ that I really enjoy. His name is Charlemagne the God from The Breakfast Club. And he calls it uh, white vanilla ISIS. Uh, that's how he <laughs> describes white terrorism, white vanilla ISIS. <laughs> and that's exactly what this this seems to be. But um, even as a person of color who follows a lot of black activists from um, Ferguson and all, all across the United States, I did not know about this. So thank you, Sarah, um, for this, uh, this news. So yeah, thank you. And uh, I'm not big on conspiracy theories, but this this is uh, really suspicious to me. Very fishy to me. Yes, yeah, very fishy. So... Something, something stinks. Yeah. Something does stink. So you know, we say at the beginning of the show, the show that the news is racist, but I'm not, I we're not attacking like true journalism that really. Um, in, investigates thoroughly and reports accurately things that are going on. This is not an, an evidence. This is not that. This is not what, when we refer to the news as being racist, this is not what we're talking about. This no. is, this is solid ass journalism. So Sarah and whoever wrote this story. Um, thank you. So uh, now we're going to get into uh, the part of our show where we do some shout outs. We shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. So what do you got, Beth? I can't wait. <laughs> I just wanted to give a <laughs> shout out to the podcast. Stay tuned with Preet. Uh, Preet Bharara is a former U.S. attorney who was fired by Trump. Uh, full disclosure, it is a political podcast. So if you don't mm -hmm. like that kind of thing, uh, then you might not enjoy it. But uh, Preet, mm -hmm. who, by the way, is an Indian American, his parents emigrated from India, so he's a POC and he is really smart and very charming. Oh yes. <laughs> I'm half in love with him. <laughs> maybe maybe more more than half. <laughs> he's he's a good audio crush. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I like the the perspective that he has having oh, been yeah? a US US attorney. He knows a lot of stuff that going on behind the scenes that uh, plebs like me don't and he interviews Ooh. a lot of interesting people mm, yes he does so yeah. um i love so shout show. out um me too. quick question what's what's a mm -hmm. pleb oh a commoner oh see see we're all learning all the time thank you beth <laughs> <You're welcome>. uh, <laughs> so i wanted to shout out a true crime goodie it is the happy face podcast um and it is uh told from the perspective of melissa melissa moore um and uh she is the daughter of keith hunter jesperson who was a serial killer he was known as the happy face um killer and uh, it is about his brutal crimes, you know, the cat and mouse game he played with detectives and the media. Um, but it's also the story about the horrific legacy he gifted his children. Um, and Melissa Moore is 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 um, telling us all what about a it. present. So it, is so good. it is. Oh, my. Yeah. 
thanks dad but it is a really really well put together show it's um it's on like a super big network so it's like really well produced and um they get all these really interesting interviews um and accounts and i don't want to spoil the story but i have two words bear attack so go listen to the show and let me know what you think about yeah it's a it's a really really good show yeah 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 so good so um hey uh where can the people find us beth our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also hey. on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, which you can download to your phone. Or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page, which uh, we will also link in our footnotes. And this will help pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. That is right. So... This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.